The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn together to Psalm 139, this tremendous psalm of God's omniscience, God's presence in our lives. Just a beautiful psalm, I'm sure, dear to most of you. Let us read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God! Away from me, you bloodthirsty men! They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In the early 1800s, a mountain man, as they were called by the name of John Coulter, explored much of the area and what is now Yellowstone National Park. He was a hunter, a trapper, an explorer. Many of you probably have heard of him. And he spent many days and many months alone in the wilderness. You think of what that must have been like to be so isolated like that. We can imagine him making his way through deep snow in the mountains or exploring areas never before explored by white men at least. And if ever a person was outside of the view of others and alone in a sense. It was 
Coulter. In fact, when he returned to civilization after one of his explorations with stories about pools of hot water and steam shooting up in the air from underground, he was laughed at and thought to be crazy. Turns out he was right. But even an extremely isolated life like John Coulter's, we know, was not outside of the all-seeing eye and presence of God. And that's what Psalm 139 is all about. There is no place to flee from the presence of God. We think about what kind of reaction should we have to this truth. Naturally, maybe the person apart from Christ would have a sense of foreboding and dread to think of that, to think of God knowing us through and through. Reminds me of Revelation, where the those who don't know Christ on that day of dread judgments will cry out to the mountains to fall on them and to the rocks to cover them. The, the terrible, in a sense, terrifying presence of the holy God because of our sin. But for the person in Christ, there's a different effect of this truth, isn't it? And it's one of comfort, of assurance, of, we might say, the right fear of God, not a cringing kind of dread, but the right fear of the Lord, which in part is a consciousness of the presence of God that affects the way we live. And Christians should be establishing the habit of constantly being aware of and being mindful of the presence of God, as this psalm describes it. That God is aware of every detail of our lives, no matter how mundane it may seem, no matter how hidden it may seem. And this imparts a God-centered motivation and outlook in all that we do and say and think. So we want to think about what Psalm 139 tells us about living our lives in the presence of the God who knows us and is with us. Let's briefly look at the structure of this psalm. This psalm can be divided into four main parts, and each of them having six verses. Verses 1 to 6 is the first part, and each of them, the first three parts, is especially wonder and praise God for His character, and especially His omniscience. The first part is the beginning part that sets forth praising God for Him knowing all things. Then in verses 7 and 12, there's a subtle shift to his omnipresence. Not not only does God know everything, but he is everywhere. And then in verses 13 to 18, there's wonder and praise for God's omnipotence, especially in the creation of the psalmist himself. And then verses 19 to 24 are a response. And actually, you see a little bit more of the structure of the psalm when you think of the last two verses of each part are a reflection of what was just described about God, and they also lead into the next part. I want us to briefly look at these different parts of the psalm and then seek to apply it in terms of thinking about living before God. The first part, verses 1 to 6, wonder and praise for God's omniscience. Here we see God's perfect knowledge of all things. The psalmist begins, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And then he's going to come back to that theme at the end in his prayer at the end of the psalm for God to search him, interestingly. 
And then he talks about God's knowledge of him. And there are three areas in verses 2, 3, and 4. In verse 2, he knows the psalmist David's thoughts. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. And not only does he know his thoughts, he knows his ways. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And then verse 4, with his words. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Sometimes we don't even know what's going to come out of our mouths. Isn't that the bad part? That sometimes things come out of our mouths and we think, I didn't mean to say that, but it already came out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The psalmist says, God knows our thoughts. He knows our ways. He knows our words even before when it's before a word is on my tongue. And then verses 5 and 6 reflect on this omniscience of God. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. That verse anticipates stanza number 2. And then verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's like Paul's doxology at the end of Romans 11. How unsearchable are your ways, O Lord, beyond knowing. Notice here that God's omniscience, the fact that he knows David, is not terrifying to him. Rather, it's a refuge to him. He shelters himself in the knowledge that God knows him through and through. And he marvels at it. It's comforting to him. But then he goes on in the next stanza of the psalm to go to, in a sense we might say, the next step. He wonders and he gives praise to God for God's omnipresence. Verses 7 to 12. And the connection here is that David is, in a sense, still meditating on the primary theme of the psalm, which is the omniscience of God. But he's noting that the reason why God sees everything and knows everything is that he is everywhere to see and know it. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your prep? presence. And we might ask, is David desiring to flee from God? Again, it might be a natural response for someone who doesn't know God to try to escape from God in some way. But the answer is no. David is not trying to escape from the presence of God. He's, he's impressed with this idea of God knowing all things and God knowing all things because God is everywhere. And he's reflecting on the idea that even if he tried to escape, not out of fear or dread, he wouldn't be able to do so. In a sense, he's speaking hypothetically here of how would you escape from the very presence of God even if you tried? And the next verses describe three areas, we might say, or three ways you could try to escape. The first is in verse 8, up or down. Heaven or, or hell or Sheol, as it is in this verse. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God's presence is in both heaven and hell. His judicial presence in hell, of course. And, and not only up or down, but then in verses 9 and 10, David talks about hypothetically going as far as he could to the east or the west. 
verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, the wings of the dawn, if the dawn is in the east, if I go as far to the east as I can, or if I settle on the far side of the sea, to David, to any Israelite, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. So from the rising of the sun and the dawn to the west, if I went to the far side of the sea, we think of someone who tried to flee from God on the far side of the sea, Jonah did. And he got on a ship and started heading west, but we know he didn't get far. So east or west, or verse 11, the idea of fleeing, escaping somehow from the presence of God into darkness. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. That reference to darkness is going to lead into the next stanza as well, which talks about in the womb, darkness in the womb in that sense. It leads into that. But what's David saying here? He's saying, even in darkness, the darkness becomes like the light to God. There's no escaping God in darkness. You can't cover or hide in that sense from the bright light of God. So David dismisses each of these three hypothetical ways to escape presence of God. And it leads into the third stanza in which David praises and stands in wonder at God's omnipotence. We've had omniscience, omnipresence, and now omnipotence. Again, omnipotence here in this part is related to the primary theme of omniscience, of God knowing in this psalm, just as omnipresence was. Because a further reason that God knows everything is that he also made everything and controls everything. So it's a variation on the theme. It's like a symphony, and each movement brings the primary main theme up and plays it in a different way. What does he say here? Verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So here is God's omnipotent power revealed in the creation of David himself as a man. His knitting him together in the womb, in this secret place, in this, in a sense, in this dark place. And then verse 16 highlights the power of God. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't that absolute sovereignty and control that all the days of our lives were written and ordained by God? What a powerful description of the omnipotence of God. But also notice that David is not writing about God's omnipotence or his omniscience here in an abstract, detached way, but in a very personal way. David is describing God's creative power informing him while he was still in his mother's womb. And notice the clear implication of these verses concerning abortion. This is one of the clearest biblical texts anywhere. 
the individuality and personality, the personhood of the child in the womb is absolutely established here by what the Bible says. It's interesting with the amazing technology today and with the availability of ultrasound, more and more this is a a wonderful tool to help young women realize that this fetus so-called in their womb, this mass of tissue, as it's called sometimes, is a human being. It's a unique human being as this psalm describes it. So David is highlighting the power of God. He knows everything because he created everything and he controls everything. And then in verses 17 and 18, again, the ending of this third stanza, he reflects on this. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So it's very precious to David to think about God's knowledge. He thinks about God's thoughts about him and this vast sum of God's thoughts. And again, he just stands in wonder and adoration at such a God. Well, the final stanza of the the psalm is a response to God's omniscience. It basically sets forth two ways a person can relate to the all-knowing God. And the first way is verses 19 to 22, and that is to rebel against God. And David, in a sense, is siding with God here. This This type of language grates on our modern sensibilities to some extent, but Hear what David is saying. In in verse 19, he says, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What is David saying here? David is repudiating this response of rebellion. He's saying, I want nothing to do with such rebellion against the true God, and in no way do I want to cooperate with those who do respond this way. In one sense, we would say David doesn't hate sinners in the absolute sense, or he would hate himself because he was one of them, saved by grace alone. But what he was saying is that he was utterly opposed to any rebellion against the true God. He did not want to ally himself with those who were openly marked by evil and defying God. doesn't mean for us, for example, that to, to assert this and to stand with David here means that we would try to somehow leave the world or go out of the world because we have to rub shoulders with those who oppose God. But it does have application in our lives. I think of a young person, for example, who may be tempted to go with those who are clearly in rebellion against God and doing the kinds of things that are contrary to God's Word. And to resolve like this as a young person would be to say, no, Lord, in a sense, I hate those who hate you. I am not going to be caught up in the group kind of idea and the group think here that would carry me along in the ways of sin. It would be to stand and to cut off that temptation to sin. Or it may mean if you're a person in business, that there's a strong temptation to have a business partnership or to ally yourself with someone who is not in submission to God, but is rebelling against God's word and his rule and doing things in an 
a way that lacks integrity, to not do that, to stand against that. That's what David is saying here. He is standing with righteousness and with the truth of God. But then the second response in verses 23 and 24, which is David's response, is that David wants to continue growing and walking in God's ways. And he prays this beautiful prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David wants to continue growing in the knowledge of this wonderful God. And it's amazing, isn't it, here that he ends the prayer, he ends with this prayer for God to know him and to search him. It's almost ironic that he would end that way because the whole psalm is telling us that God already knows him thoroughly. But he says, search me in this sense of way, what we understand it to mean, Lord, show me, search me and expose the areas of my lives, of my life that are, that need to be exposed, that need to be tested and revealed, that need to be changed, that need to be confessed, that need to be transformed by your grace that I might glorify you. Well, let's make some applications to, to our lives then in, in the light of what we've seen in this psalm. And the first is, if we are to live in the presence of our God, as we do so, it will restrain us from the path of sin. Living before God restrains sin. Again, we're not speaking of a cringing dread of God. We're speaking of a sober sense of knowing our Father, our Lord, and our God, that He knows us, He knows what we think, He knows our words before they're on our lips, He knows our ways. That has a restraining influence on the Christian's walk with God. That we know that God is holy and loving We know that he has received us in Christ. We know that he is present in our lives, the one who bought us through Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to live and act when we know that God sees us through and through? And, of course, the answer is, well, by God's grace, it will transform us more and more. So that when we're driving down the street and no one's in the car with us and and we're tempted to react in some way, because there's this anonymity on the road that we can, you know, uh, feel like the person in the car doesn't even hear us, that we're going to respond in a Christ-centered, gracious way more and more. Or maybe how we speak with our closest associates and friends, how we talk about others. Do we have the judgment of charity toward those around us? Or do we gossip Or maybe we think about the example that was in the news this week of General McChrystal and this embedded reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that was apparently with him. And if you read any of the articles about that, you see that General McChrystal had many things to say that, you know, you just kind of wonder, what was he thinking? But you just think about the fact that, well, how would any of us be with an embedded reporter following us around all the time? Or even better than that, knowing our thoughts. Where would any of us be? Who would want our... any of us to know all of our conversations and all of our thoughts broadcast to the whole world. But there's one person who could have had an embedded reporter with him all the time, and that's Jesus Christ, of course. And when we think about Jesus Christ, who had nothing to hide, 
who never wore a mask, who had 12 disciples with him all the time for three years, and none of them ever saw any sin. And an embedded reporter with Jesus Christ who was just looking for something to accuse him wouldn't have been able to find anything. In fact, I'm sure that reporter would have been amazed at the holiness and integrity, the compassion and love of this God-man. And so, as Jesus Christ is our Lord, and as we are trusting in Him and seeking Him and knowing He's present with us, the effect will be that more and more His likeness will be evident in our lives. Knowledge of the presence of our gracious and holy God transforms us from, from within. But secondly, living in the presence of a holy and loving God enables us to honestly confess our sin and turn from it to the glory of God. Living before God enables us to confess and turn from our sin. And I love the words of that final prayer of David when he cries out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. The reality of the omniscience of God would be a terrifying thought to all of us were we not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But we know that in the gospel we stand robed in the righteousness of Christ. And he sees and know us through, he knows us through and through. He, he accepts us through Christ. God accepts us through Christ. And that enables us to be utterly honest with God. We don't have to hide our sin from him. We can pray what David prayed. We need to be praying this way, Lord, expose my heart, expose my sin, that you might change me radically more and more. The amazing truth is that we are absolutely loved by God in Christ, just as we are. Yet God is not, he has an agenda for change in our lives to make us more like Christ. And the gospel sets us free to face up to the truth about our sin even the wrong motivations many times that are in our hearts, and to be transformed as God searches us and exposes us. I think about how the book of Colossians talks about the workplace, which is one area that many of us find ourselves in much of the time. And and slaves are addressed at the end of Colossians 3. And listen to how Paul addresses slaves. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And he goes on. Isn't that an amazing God-centeredness in a very mundane area of life, your work. And for slaves, even mundane work that a servant or slave might do, Paul is saying, the presence of God in your life transforms the mundane activities of your life. You can do all these things unto the Lord, not serving man, but serving the Lord. You think of the crisis in our day of the misuse of time at work. You read about these government workers who have been found that they're spending, you know, seven hours a day on the internet instead of doing their job, and all this kind of dishonesty in terms of the use of time on the job. 
certainly the Bible speaks to this in all of our lives, that we are to be people of integrity in how we use our time. We are serving the Lord. And even in the extreme case of a servant or a slave, slave, even the most lowly task is made sacred because all of life is before the eyes of the God of Psalm 139, the God who knows us through and through. All of life in the presence of God means that we're praying, search me, God, test me. And even the trials that God brings into our lives, what a comfort it is to know, to know that this psalm reflects God's knowing, God's presence, and God's omnipotence power is at work in the details of our lives. All of our lives are written in God's book before one of those days came to be. God's thoughts are vast toward us. What an encouragement this should be to live for the glory of God. Well, finally, I would say that living in the presence of this God means that we will grow in assurance of his fatherly love and guidance. We will grow in assurance of his fatherly love and guidance. Don't we see this come out in the psalm again and again in verses 7 to 10 in these hypothetical questions of how we could escape from God, and and we know we can't, no matter how high or low or east or west or even in the darkness, God is there. God has ordained the days of our lives. One of the great themes of Scripture is, do not be afraid, says the Lord, I am with you. Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. What a tremendous encouragement that is to all of us. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I think of the example of Asaph in Psalm 73, looking at the circumstances of his life and beginning to go down that slippery slope of doubt, doubting God's care and God's faithfulness to him. But then Asaph finally understands these things by the grace of God. And then he says in verses 23 and 24, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. What a comprehensive declaration of the loving and father, the loving fatherly care of our God. You guide me, and afterward you will take me into glory. You hold me by my right hand. We were taking our grandsons across the street to a lemonade stand, and there were cars going by every once in a while, and we grabbed our three-year-old grandson's hands and said, hold our hand. And he certainly, you know, he knew he had to do that. They never liked to do that, I guess, even at that age. They want to be on their own. He walked across the street with us. God is our loving, protecting father who holds our hand like a parent holds a grandchild's hand. We must grow in this right sense of God's presence. And as we do so, we will grow in the assurance that his all-seeing and all-knowing presence in our lives is the presence of a father who has received us in Christ and who promises to guide and protect us always. He will never leave us or forsake us. 
That is the assurance of Psalm 139. At one point in his explorations, John Holter and his trapping buddy were captured by Blackfeet Indians in the Three Forks area of North Dakota. Coulter's friend was killed by them, but the Indians took Coulter and stripped him and told him he was going to run for his life. And they asked him, it was interesting, kind of funny, they asked him, do you run fast or slow? Now, what would you tell him if they asked you that? He told him, I'm slow. So they gave him a real big head start, you know, a couple hundred yards, and off he went. There's a famous account that survives of his experience, and he gets to the river, which was not far away, and managed to get into a beaver house in the Madison River there. And he was able to breathe and stay there for a while as they looked for him. And then, naked, without any shoes or anything, he walks seven days to the nearest outpost across these uh, plains filled with prickly pear, just, you know, barely alive when he got there. Now, there is no evidence that John Coulter was a believer. I don't know where he stood with God. But I don't doubt that during that very desolate experience, he probably cried out to God a number of times, praying for God to be with him, I'm sure. He was desperate on the very edge of death. Well, I conclude with that illustration just to remind you, how much more do you and I who belong to Jesus Christ, who are given these wonderful assurances that David speaks about, about the presence and the power of God in our lives. He knows us and loves us in Christ and cleanses us of our sins and assures us of glory with him forever that he is guiding our steps, how much more should we trust in our loving God? Amen. Let's pray. Father, may we trust you more this week. May the mind of Jesus Christ, our Savior, dwell in us as we seek to live before you. What a reassuring truth this is that you hold forth before us in this psalm. May it come with power to our lives and our hearts and our minds, even this week, as we find ourselves often not consciously aware of you, bring us back to you, O Lord. Help us to cultivate this living presence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.